Good morning. It's good to be worshiping together. As Greg invited you, you can turn to Genesis chapter 49 specifically. And we're going to be starting in verse 29. One of the greatest films of my childhood was that 1993 classic, The Sandlot. And uh, my dad loved watching that with my brothers and me because it depicted his childhood. Set in 1962, every time we watched it, my dad would say, that's exactly how it was when I was growing up. Just run out the front door with our mitts to the sandlot. We'd just play baseball for hours and uh, till it got dark and then even beyond that. And th- there's a scene in The Sandlot, if you've seen it, probably remember this one. Scotty Smalls has begged his new stepdad to teach him how to play catch because he has no idea. I mean, he's so uncoordinated and not cool, and he begs his stepdad to teach him how to play catch. So Bill says, all right, grab your glove. They go out to the backyard, and as they're coming out of the house, Bill says to him, all right, the most important thing in baseball is keep your eye on the ball. Whether you're at bat or in the field, keep your eye on the ball. Then he winds up, an overhand fastball just sails right by Scotty's head. Scotty picks up the ball, doesn't even know how to throw it, so he just walks it back to Bill and hands it to him. Bill's thinking, this is going to be a long, long process. Another attempt sails right by Scotty. Each time, Bill's reminding him, keep your eye on the ball. Wherever the ball goes, your glove goes. Just keep your eye on the ball. That's the most important thing in baseball. So the third attempt, fastball right at Scotty's head right at his eye. And more out of instinct than any kind of athleticism, he puts his glove up and blocks the ball, and it hits him right in the eye. And he starts screaming, and they run inside, and he's crying, and his mom comes out to comfort him, and Bill goes to the freezer and gets a frozen steak and unwraps it and just slaps it on his eye. And Scotty tells his mom, it's okay, mom, I just took my eye off the ball. And Bill says, yeah, well, at least you caught it. The text that we're coming to in Genesis this morning is a keep your eye on the ball kind of text. You ever notice how much of American culture is influenced by baseball and how much of baseball is relevant to life? (laughs) Keep your eye on the ball. That's what this text was meant for to the original audience, Israelites walking around in the desert preparing to go into the promised land. They, They needed a reminder that would focus them and center them on this crucial thing. Keep your eye on the ball. That's how the New Testament cites this text we're looking at this morning. When the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 cites scenes from the closing of the book of Genesis, building to his climactic point, let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and and let us run with endurance the race marked out for us. Keep your eye on the ball. We need that because we're prone to wander, aren't we? Maybe you can recall seasons in your life where God's word was sweet to you and his presence was manifest to you and your faith was full. And, and then maybe you've gone through those seasons, we, we often call them like dry seasons, just feels like a drought, like a desert, like wandering. And, and you're thinking, I know what it's like to open my Bible and, and encounter God and that just hasn't happened for a long time. Or maybe the the busyness of life has distracted you. Or whatever it is, we need the grace of God that is offered to us in 
these closing scenes of the book of Genesis. So follow along with me as I read, beginning in chapter 49, verse 29, through the end of Genesis. This is God's sufficient and authoritative and true word. Then he, that is Jacob, commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me pass, please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a great, very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days when the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites saw the morning of the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous morning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Misraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. Father, your word is life to our souls. It nourishes us, it sustains us, it instructs us, it corrects us and rebukes us, teaches us in the way we should go. And most importantly, it reveals to us your person, your glory, your presence. And so we receive it humbly. We tremble at your word and we pray that you would communicate yourself to us for the sake of our trust in you and our obedience of faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So we called this sermon series Becoming a Company of Peoples. And here in, in Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, the key threads of the story of God are introduced and developed. The threads that are going to run through the entire story of God, the threads that are still running in the story of this world that we live in, the story we live in, the true story of the world. From the beginning, God has purposed for this earth this earth to be filled with worshipers who know his glory and delight in his glory. God promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he would bless them, that he would multiply them, that he would make them into a, a company of peoples, that is, a congregation of, of nations, a gospel community on mission, filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. And in the New Testament, Jesus authoritatively declares, I will build my church. That's what God is doing in the world. And so as we come to the end of this series, these closing scenes from the book of Genesis, I want to give you four ways for you to keep your eye on the ball as God himself builds his church as God himself strengthens us and joins us together in a gospel community on mission, as God himself fulfills his purpose for the world. Here are four ways for you to stay focused on God and what he's doing. Number one, submit to God's transformational process for your life. Submit to God's transformational process in your life. As the book of Genesis comes to an end, so do the days of Jacob's life. And what is so striking in these closing scenes is how different Jacob is. I mean, for most of his life, Jacob has been deceitful, manipulative, 
fearful. There are scenes in Genesis where he is fleeing for his life from his brother Esau, running from his father-in-law Laban. He has been grief-stricken and in his grief totally passive in his family. And the dysfunction of Jacob's household just reflects the sin in Jacob's own life. But on his deathbed, Jacob is different. He seems like a changed man, one commentator says. On his deathbed, Jacob has assumed total and dynamic leadership of the family. And even Joseph bows down to him. Joseph, who is second in command in the most powerful nation on earth, Joseph bows to honor his father Jacob. Hebrews 11 in the New Testament, we often call it the hall of faith. You know, it lists all those numerous examples of people who lived their lives by faith, and it gives specific examples of works of faith, obedience of faith from their lives. It's filled with grand things like, you know, Abel, by faith offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did, or Enoch. I mean, he's a pretty incredible story. He was actually taken from this world and never died because he walked with God by faith. Or Noah, he built an ark to save his family from the flood by faith. Or Abraham, he left his homeland and wandered as a sojourner by faith. Jacob appears in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. What example, his life takes up half the book of Genesis. What example would you give of faith from Jacob's life? I think it's significant that Hebrews 11 gives this deathbed moment as the example of Jacob's faith. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. It's on his deathbed that Jacob speaks with faith and conviction and authority. He's assertive and he's dignified. And with his last words, he clearly aligns himself with the faith of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac with the God of his fathers. I mean, the transformation in his life is astonishing, and it should generate in you patience and contentment and assurance and confidence that God is at work. Trust God's developmental process for your life. God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You can be sure of that according to Philippians 1, 6. Just just consider Jacob's life, the mess of his life, the years of heartache and betrayal and deception and fear and and grief. Remember when he stood before Pharaoh and Pharaoh asked him how old he was and his answer was, few and evil have been the days of my life. And yet none of that could thwart God's work, God's work in Jacob. And all of those critical events and all of those painful experiences were formational tools in God's skillful hands. One commentator says, Jacob, who fought his life, his way into life, remember he came out grasping the heel of his twin brother, fought his way into life, he departs just as dramatically. The life of Jacob, which has stretched over half the book of Genesis, has seen the family through moments of trust and betrayal, sterility and fertility, Feast and famine, separation and reunion, all within the promise and the providence of God. All of it, all of it has been under the promise and the providence 
of God so that on his deathbed, Jacob can say with faith, God has been my shepherd all my life long. Looking back, he sees it. God was shepherding me. He was leading me. He was providing for me. He was protecting me. He was shepherding me to this day. And he has redeemed me from all evil. That's how God forms a company of peoples for his own possession. He shepherds people. He redeems them from evil. So are you trusting God as the shepherd of your life today? Or do your prayers sound more like advising God and counseling God and instructing God and giving God maybe some constructive criticism for how he's doing in his job? Are you trusting him? Do do you know Jesus Christ as the one who redeems you from evil? Jacob died a changed man. And the exclamation point to God's redemptive work in his life is the way that Jacob was honored in his death. Did Did you catch that? Verse Three of chapter 50 says, the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. Ancient texts indicate 70 days was the time of mourning for an Egyptian king. That's crazy. Jacob was honored not just by his own sons, but by the nation of Egypt with the kind of mourning and funeral that was fit for an Egyptian pharaoh. That's not all. In this funeral procession going back to the land of Canaan to bury him, the text tells us a very great company goes up with Jacob's sons, including all the elders of Pharaoh's own household and all the elders of the land of Egypt and chariots and charioteers. I mean, the army, the the people who live in the land of Canaan, when they remarked that that word, when they, they saw this great company, that word is also translated in the Old Testament, an army. There was an army with all of the dignitaries and all the officials and all of the military fanfare. I mean, this is like the very recent funeral of George H.W. Bush, if you saw any of that. At his funeral, there in the front row are five living presidents. And then in the crowd, all of these other dignitaries from the U.S. and around the world. And then there was military honor because he was a World War II veteran I mean, you know it's an important person when their funeral looks like that and is attended by people like that. That's the kind of funeral Jacob had, but he wasn't a king. He was a nomadic shepherd, and shepherds were an abomination to Egyptians. So what did Jacob do to deserve this? Nothing. This is just sheer grace from God. Jacob was blessed by God. Blessed by God. Not because he earned it. That's grace. And that same grace from God, that saving grace, that transforming grace, that's the grace that God offers to you. So what are the failures and what are the regrets and what are the wounds that mark your story? If you surrender your life to God, the God of Jacob, he will redeem you from all evil and transform you by his grace. And you can be sure of it, not just because Jacob is an example of this, but because of the one that Jacob foreshadows 
in his death. The unexpected way that the Egyptians exalt Jacob as a king points us to to Jesus, the son of Jacob, who now rules the nations and receives praise from all the peoples of the earth. He's the one who redeems our lives from all evil. And so this is the way that we engage in the process of becoming a company of peoples by submitting to Jesus as king of our lives and entrusting ourselves to his transformational work in us today. Number two, incline your heart toward God and toward his kingdom. Jacob's faith was aimed in a specific direction. That's the main point of the opening paragraph we read Genesis 49, 29 through 33. It's all about location. The entire emphasis is on location. He says to his sons, bury me with my fathers. And then he elaborates with precise and even repetitive detail exactly where he wants to be buried. And the interesting thing is the narrator here could have left these details out. Why do we need to know? Right? He says, in the cave that's in the field of Ephron the Hittite. You know, the cave that's in the field at Machpelah? You know, it's east of Mamre. Remember, it's in the land of Canaan. Remember, it's the one that Abraham bought. He bought it from Ephron the Hittite, remember? I mean, he just repeats these details about the precise location, and then he names Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Leah as being buried there. He wants his sons to make no mistake, but ultimately, Moses wrote this because God wants his people, Israel, wandering around the desert to be clear. It is Canaan, not Egypt. It is Canaan where God has promised to give you a land and a possession, where God has promised to dwell with you. Jacob's hope is aimed in a direction. Joseph's hope was aimed there too. Look at the very end of Genesis 50 when Joseph says, I'm about to die now. Fast forwarding to the end of his life. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to that land that he swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So you shall carry my bones there. And he gives instructions. And Hebrews 11 points to this and says, that's the example of faith from Joseph's life. He gave instructions about his bones. Here's the point. Faith is directional. Faith is not some vague optimism. It has an aim. It has a direction. It has a a focus. It's directional and it's dynamic. Faith is always moving you in a direction. It's not just aimed in a direction. It's propelling you in that direction. The author James Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, talks about this when he says, to be human is to live directionally. We are all living towards something. This is not an optional thing like some of us are living towards something and some of us are just static beings. If you're a human, you have a soul. And if you have a soul, you have affections and desires. And affections and desires move you toward things. That's what affection is. It has a direction. You live toward what you desire. You live in the direction of what you love the most. You live toward whatever you are convinced will satisfy you and secure you. So your heart, it points you and it propels you. It points you and it propels you. I mean, think of it like a a compass and a motor. Compass and a motor. It orients you towards some promised land. 
Faith always has a direction. And the problem is, sin decalibrates the compass of our hearts. This text was originally addressed to the people of God wandering in the desert, and they had misplaced hope. Look at Numbers 14. This is just one of numerous examples we could cite. When the Israelites grumble and they say, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? To go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Their hearts are miscalibrated. It's in the New Testament that Stephen, in his sermon before he's martyred, he locates their problem in their hearts. Acts 7.39, our fathers refused to obey Moses but thrust him aside. And in their hearts... They turned to Egypt in their hearts. That's where we are all directed by what we desire. But the final wishes of Jacob and Joseph were written down. Written down for that generation in the desert and written down for us to recalibrate our wayward hearts so that we would set our hope in God. So what's so great about the land of Egypt? Why was, or of Canaan, why, why was it better than the land of Egypt? Hebrews 11 tells us why the patriarchs set their hope there. They were looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. It's not just the land, not just the grass is greener there. They were looking for a city built by God. If they, the patriarchs, had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they they could have gone back. But as it is, they desired a better country, specifically a heavenly country. And that's why God is not ashamed to be called their God, because he has prepared for them just such a city. Jacob and Joseph gave commands about their bodies and about their bones after their death because the orientation of their hearts by faith was God and the city of God. It wasn't just a land. It was the place where God himself promised to dwell with them. So what does that have to do with us, New Testament believers? We're not hoping for some specific geographic plot of land on the earth today, are we? I mean, even today, Jews will pray facing Israel, and Muslims will get out a special compass that always points them toward Mecca when they pray. So what's the the directional orientation of the faith of Christians? Hebrews 12 tells us, you have not come to what may be touched, but you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant, a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And the author of Hebrews is talking about the church, the church of God on earth as the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, which is still the hope of all the people of God, the orientation of all of our affections and all of our desires because it's the place where God meets with us. And so, while we wait for God to make all creation new, 
we already begin to enjoy his presence among us when he inhabits his church by his spirit. And so our hearts are oriented and aimed and inclined in a specific direction, namely toward where Jesus is, where Jesus makes himself known. The city of God is not built out of bricks. It doesn't have property lines registered with the county. It is growing and expanding on earth. The church is the new Jerusalem, and it is being progressively revealed in all of its glory. So where's your heart aimed? What's the trajectory of your deepest desires? Make Psalm 119.36 your, your prayer, your daily prayer. Incline my heart toward your testimonies. We, we pray that way because we need God to assert himself in us. You have to be born again to have a heart that's aimed toward the city of God. All of us in sin are oriented away from God. But the new covenant promise of God is to give us new hearts with new desires, and God himself will cause us to walk in his ways. And so the people of God, the company of peoples God is forming is not a, a company that shares the same ethnicity or people who all live in the same geographic location, but all the people on earth whose hearts are inclined toward God and the city he has built for us. Number three, enjoy God's forgiveness and extend it to others. If, if Jacob's death and Joseph's death that bookend this last part of Genesis are meant to orient the hope of God's people toward a place. There's this middle scene of reconciliation between Joseph, Joseph and his brothers, and I believe it's meant to unite the people of God, to unite them. I mean, there are lots of different reasons that big crowds of people can be in the same location. Being in the same place doesn't make you a united people. You could be shopping at the mall for Christmas with a bunch of strangers. You're all in the same place, but you're not a, a united people, right? You could be drawn up two armies lined up against each other. They're not united, even though they're all in the same place at the same time. So the question is, how will God make a company, a singular company of peoples, of nations, of diverse people. And the answer throughout his word is justification. By saving them, by forgiving them, by canceling their record of debt against God. There is no spiritual community without the forgiveness of sins. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. Fellowship with each other comes first and foremost from being united to Jesus and having our sins forgiven. Sin puts you out of fellowship with God and out of fellowship with people. The blood of Jesus brings you in. It's only through Christ's atoning work on the cross that we can have that kind of community and unity with one another. There's a popular myth today that you can unite people around unity itself. So all kinds of people just wave that banner of unity, and they just say things like, let's all get along, and let's all just get together at this place called get along. And then they get there, and they find they don't get along. 
Because getting along can't be the thing that unites you. You have to be gathered together for something deeper. We're not united in the name of unity. We're united in the name of Christ, who has washed all our sins away. It's God's justifying declaration about us. It's God's forgiveness to us that unites us. That's what happened to these hostile sons of Jacob. In humble repentance, Joseph's brothers admitted to him all the evil they had done. They spoke of their transgression and sin using the strongest possible words in the Hebrew language to describe the evil they had done to Joseph. What they need was God's forgiveness. That's indicated by Joseph's reply to them when he asks, am I in the place of God? You need God's forgiveness. Unity always begins with reconciliation vertically. That's true in every human relationship, in your marriage, in your parenting, with your coworkers, with your neighbors, with other people in the church. If you're ever out of fellowship with somebody else, somebody's in sin because if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we'll have fellowship with each other. So it always begins by vertical reconciliation. And even though Joseph had already expressed forgiveness to his brothers years ago, and for 17 years they've been living in Egypt, as he has lavishly provided for him, they still fear some retaliation. Now that Jacob's dead, they're afraid. Maybe now, maybe he was just waiting till dad died. Now he's going to get even with us. They're living in fear. He had already forgiven them. The good news for them and for us is that forgiveness is not a, a feeling whether I feel forgiven by somebody or not, by God or not. Forgiveness is a status. It's a legal declaration. Joseph says to his brothers twice in this text, do not fear. Don't fear. So he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Literally in the Hebrew, he spoke to their hearts, their worried and anxious hearts. And that's what God's justifying word to us does in Christ when he says you are righteous in his sight because his son hung on the cross and bore the blame for all your sin, his word to you speaks to your heart and says, do not fear. Don't fear. I will provide for you, not punish you. And he brings us into fellowship with himself and with each other. So are you enjoying the forgiveness of all your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Because if you are, then you're, you're in the family business, which is to extend that same reconciliation to the world. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Like God himself is making his appeal through us to the world. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. When we talk about living on mission, that's what we're talking about. Living our lives all throughout the everyday stuff of life, imploring the people around us in the city of Sioux Falls, there's a way to be reconciled to God. It's through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we implore people, 
be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And finally, trust that God is working in all things for your good. Trust that. Be persuaded of that. Hold on to that persuasion in the hardest times, in the darkest valleys. That's the presiding paradigm in Joseph's life. Came up in chapter 45, and he states it here in Genesis 50, verse 20, when he says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This verse, I think, is often misquoted. People say things like, God can turn bad things into good things. God can use bad things. But the verse actually says, God meant it. Notice the verb in both phrases, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. The verb is the same in both places. It's the same Hebrew word that means to devise, to plan, to think. This is not God just cleaning up the mess. This is God working out his plan. It's not that God turned the evil into good. He meant and devised and planned. Now, careful. He didn't plan evil. He planned the events for good and not for evil like the motive of the brothers. The brothers only intended to harm Joseph, but above them was a sovereign and wise and gracious God superintending those same events and circumstances, not for evil and harm, but for good and with righteous intentions to bring about salvation of the world from a famine. The brothers had no, they weren't thinking on that level at all when they tried to murdered Joseph, and then decided to sell him into slavery. Jonathan Edwards is helpful when he explains, God may hate a thing as it is in itself and considered simply as evil. And yet, it may be his will that it should come to pass considering all consequences. God doesn't will sin as sin. That's crucial. God does not will sin as sin or for the sake of anything evil ever though it be his pleasure so to order things that he permitting sin will come to pass for the sake of the great good that by his disposal shall be the consequence. What a God we serve. Does the doctrine of God's sovereignty and his providence that we talk about so much here, does that function redemptively in your life? Does it function in your thinking about yourself and about your circumstances and about your past, does that get something done in you? For Joseph, this is not an abstract truth. For so many confessionally reformed or Calvinistic people, this is sadly just like a heady doctrine to take pride in believing. And then it doesn't work in real life. But for Joseph, this is functional. Look at what this theological conviction, that's what it is. It's a belief about God that is the banner over and the foundation under Joseph's life. And look what it does in his relationships. I mean, he's able to forgive and comfort and speak kindly to and provide for his brothers who plotted to murder him. Why? Because of something he believes about God. All beliefs about God come out our fingertips in our relationships with each other. 
Just look at how you're living. Look at how you're reacting in any moment. Your beliefs about God are coming out of you all the time. So we want this to shape us. This is what we call the functional centrality of the gospel. Truth about God. Who he is. and How he works. And what he does. And ultimately what he has done for us in Christ. That functions at the core of our everyday living. This becomes the lens through which we survey everything that lies behind us and everything that lies, lies before us. When I say, does this function redemptively in you? I mean, does it generate hope in you? Contentment, peace, not bitterness. If it, if it produces bitterness, like now I'm just more bitter and angry at God if he had anything to do with the suffering in my life. You haven't yet got the doctrine of the providence of God. When you get it and you trust it, it redeems you from all of the hopelessness and all of the despair and all of the bitterness and all of the frustration. And it gives you peace because God himself is peace and he is working in all things for your good as he promises in Romans 8, 28. We know that God... For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And that's why it's possible for us then to to plan and to pray and to live and to work and to risk like people who know God is working in all things for our good. And so I want to encourage you to keep your eye on the ball. God is forming a company of peoples. It's interesting to me that a tomb in the land of Canaan was the very first possession Abraham and his descendants ever owned there. And their hope was, it's not going to be the last, but their very first possession, the first title, the first property they had in that land was a tomb. And over time, it got more and more full. Abraham and his wife, Isaac and his wife, Jacob and his wife. And our hope and our confidence is a tomb in the land of Canaan, an empty tomb. Not the tomb itself, but the risen Savior who left that tomb and was raised in glory and tells us today, I will build my church, Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. God's providence in his death is the ultimate guarantee to us that God is working in all things for our good. And so Acts 2 says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Was it sin? Yes. Was it the plan of God? Yes. And that is our comfort and our hope. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so we know we are a resurrection people. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their hope was not to be buried in a tomb, but to be raised from that tomb to live forever in the city God promised to build for them. And so we share in the very same faith of those patriarchs trusting God is doing it. He's building a company of peoples, and that's how we know that God will not fail. He will not fail. So when you submit your life to God's transformational process and you incline your heart to God and his city and you enjoy the grace of his mercy toward you in Christ and you trust his providence in all of your circumstances, including the bad ones and the evil that others do against you, in all of that, you are simply looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And so keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus together. 
And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let's pray. Father, your word engenders such hope in your people. Your word does that by giving such lavish grace to your people. You give us yourself. We have you and you live. And your resurrecting power, your new creation power has begun on earth. Jesus was raised from the dead. And so it has begun. And we know it's begun because you have raised us. You've given us new hearts with new desires. You took out the hearts of stone. You gave us new hearts. You put your spirit in us. And so we taste your resurrection life already. And we long for the the fulfillment of it when you make all things new. And so give us endurance and give us faith and preserve us and keep us trusting you to the end and make us a gospel community on mission and use us to implore people in this city to be reconciled to you and God bring many, many more hundreds and thousands of people in this city to faith in Jesus and join them to the company of peoples that you are making on earth on earth until the whole earth is filled with worshipers who know and treasure your glory. In Jesus' name.